Hey, thanks so much for listening to the Grace City Church podcast. If you would like more info on our church, you can visit gracecityboston.com. Now let's get to the sermon. Good morning. We're lagging today. Bad connection. Uh, It's great to be with you. My name is Cohen. I'm the college pastor here at Grace City, uh, and I have the Uh, the privilege to continue us in our series, The Jesus Movement. So if you've been with us uh, through this series, we're going through the book of Acts, basically tracing back our story, how a group of people in this room in Boston in 2021 got here. What what in the world happened 2,000 years ago uh, that, uh, that, that pulsated out to the rest of the world that got us to this point? So I wanna uh, recall us back to Acts chapter one, verse eight, where Jesus tells his disciples, that they will be his witnesses to Jerusalem, the city that they're in, out to Judea and Samaria, to the region they're in, all the way to the ends of the earth. Now, I'm sure when Tucker read the scripture today, there was probably a bunch of questions and confusions, like, I don't even know what the problem is here. I don't know why people are fighting about circumcision and the law of Moses. I've never even thought about those two things. Uh, So we do need to do a little bit of hard work on the front end to understand what exactly is going on here. Uh, and so we're going to take a, we're going to zoom out a little bit, take a bird's eye view. We're going to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 to God's covenant with Abraham. Okay, so this is uh, basically, practically the beginning of God's plan of salvation for all nations. Okay, every 99% of the Bible comes after this and is kind of funneled down to this covenant. Everything kind of is in light of this covenant. So uh, let's read this in Genesis 12, verse 1. It says, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That's our key text uh, for understanding this. God's plan is to start with Abraham and eventually reach all the peoples of the world through what he's going to do with Abraham. So we need to do a quick overview of the Old Testament. What actually happens between this and Acts? Well, Abraham disobeys God a lot, but in general, he's still faithful to go where God is calling him to go. And so uh, Abraham is given a son, Isaac. Isaac is given sons, Jacob and Esau. And then Jacob has the 12 sons, which become the 12 patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel. And after, uh, after they sell their younger brother, Joseph, into slavery in Egypt, a bunch of things happen, and all of Israel becomes slaves in Egypt. And so uh, God supernaturally saves the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, takes them through the wilderness on their way to what he calls the promised land. I'm going to set you up here, make you a nation, give you land. I'm going to give you laws to function as a society in the land, and I will be your king. I, God, will be your king. Now, on the way to the promised land at Mount Sinai, God gives Moses to give to Israel his law. We call this the Mosaic law, which is obviously the kind of key thing that's going on in this text here. The Mosaic law consists of three things, okay? First, we have moral commandments. You may know the Ten Commandments. These are things, moral rights and wrongs that are always true no matter what, in all situations. God is saying, this is morally right, this is morally wrong. Keep these things. Uh, The second thing is civil guidelines, okay? You're about to become your own country, basically. This family that's come from this one man, Abraham, is 
multiplied so much they're about to become their own country. And so he gives them civil laws. Here's how you're supposed to be a neighbor. Here's how you're supposed to execute justice. Here's how you're supposed to punish criminals. And here's how you're supposed to pay taxes and whatnot. And then the third thing is ritual laws. Things like what foods to eat and not eat, what clothing to wear and not wear, um, what haircuts to get and not get. These were all sort of surface level things that were meant to distinguish Israel from the pagan nations around them. They were set up as barriers, boundaries. Basically, don't participate in these things because that's just a little too close to associating yourself with these pagan nations. And if you do that, you're basically, you're too weak, you're too immature as my people. You'll become influenced like them and give in to their uh, pagan ways and their idolatry. So they were set up as sort of boundaries to help them stay faithful to Yahweh, the God of Israel. Now, the sad story, if we read through the history of the Old Testament, so if you read through like the stories, you got uh, the books of Moses and then Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, you read through the story, you'll see that the Israelites from top to bottom, from kings and prophets and priests, the influential people constantly failed at living up to these guidelines. Very extensive law code, but in a way, they were, it was doable, and they, they abandoned God quickly. They were unfaithful to God as a nation. Eventually, as a result, God handed them over to their desire to be like the nations around them and exiled them into Babylon. They lost control of their land for about 70 years. Eventually, they came back, but it was never really the same. They never had full ownership of the land. They didn't take control of the land and, and call the shots, basically, as God had intended with the Mosaic Law. You guys... With me? We got tracking? All right, great. And so now this brings us to the New Testament. We have all the Israelites living under an, uh, another oppressive Gentile uh, empire, the, Greek, uh, the Romans. Everything's Greek. Everyone's speaking Greek. All the culture's Greek. Everything's mixed together. All the Jews are spread out everywhere. It's, it's getting harder and harder to actually obey these guidelines because they're kind of sitting in the judgment of God that they don't actually own this land because of their the unfaithfulness of all of their ancestors. And so we get to Acts and we find that with the giving of the Spirit, a lot of Gentiles are coming to faith, believing in the God of Israel. And so it starts looking a lot different. You no longer have a bunch of Jewish people worshiping the God of Israel alone. You now have people from Antioch and Syria and, and Thessalonica and all these different places that with different skin colors, different languages, worshiping the same God. And this is a, a, a pretty unique thing they haven't seen before. And some people are pretty afraid of it. Some people are very angry uh, that it's not happening exactly how they wished it would happen. Okay. So this is uh, this Jerusalem council is what we're calling Acts 15. That's, that's what this is. This was a defining moment in the early church. This was a council gathered together to oppose and clarify a heretical teaching that's spreading throughout the churches in the known world. And so what happens here, as, as Tucker read, is a group of believers, a group of people who are followers of Jesus, or at least they're claiming to be, who were also a part of the Pharisees, which is a weird combination. You always hear Pharisees and you're like, those are like the bad guys in the story. They're always causing trouble, making Jesus really angry. Uh, it's a weird combination. They, they start spreading this teaching to Gentiles that they need to take up the Jewish law, become circumcised, and take up all the customs and the ritual laws that Moses commanded Israel. Essentially, they're saying, in order to be saved by the Jewish Messiah, you must become Jewish because Jesus didn't die for everyone. He died for the Jews. Sounds terrible, doesn't it? So there's two contributing factors as to why they would teach this. So we're going to jump into our text here. Um, 
There's two contributing factors. So for shorthand, we're going to call this group of people the Judaizers. They're often called the Judaizers or the circumcision party. We're going to call these people the Judaizers. There's two reasons why they would try to spread this. Reason one would be a sort of nationalism, ethnocentrism, or Jewish supremacy. They had this view based off the fact that God had chosen them in the Old Testament. They kind of had this assumption that, Jesus, that, that God was very pro-Jew, very pro-Israelite, and very anti-Gentile. God loves this group of ethnic people and doesn't like all the other people, that he's got them number one on the list, sort of. When we look at the covenant with Abraham, that wasn't really the case. He simply had to start somewhere. If he started with someone else, people would probably have this exact same uh, belief that simply where God started was you know, with the ethnic people that he preferred, which is not true. And, uh, and this teaching that God is very pro-Jew and very anti-Gentile, is very, it's very divisive, obviously. It's not, it's not inviting, it's not encouraging, it's not, it's not anything positive. And so these Gentiles who are following Jesus are very worried now. They're saying, this can't possibly be true. This isn't the Jesus that I was told about. And so this is, this is the first reason that they, would, uh, that they would probably be teaching this. The second reason, so their, their motivations are probably one or both of these things. Uh, any given Judaizer. The second reason would be self-righteousness. They probably think to themselves, hey, I've had to keep this law code for all my life. My ancestors had to keep it. This is a pretty burdensome law code. And now you just get to come in and you don't have to do it. You don't have to like do all the hard work that we've done. It has this strong aura of self-righteousness. Like we've done a great job at doing this, which is wrong. <laughs> They're kidding themselves. We've done a great job at fulfilling all these laws and whatnot, and these Gentiles can't come in here and not earn their keep, put some skin in the game. They have this point of view that somehow maintaining these laws was them earning favor with God, not God protecting them from falling into idolatry. They believed that they were saved by grace plus the works of the law, the laws of Moses. And if that's true, that's really no grace at all because it's still dependent on what they did. Now, Peter, in verses 6 through 11, kind of debunks both of these things. So we'll go back into our text here, starting in verse 6. Against the first reason, the first motivation, this sort of supremacist, this Jewish nationalist sort of view, against this, Peter, uh, Peter kind of just debunks the whole thing. In verse 6, it says that the apostles and the elders gathered to consider this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you are aware that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. So Peter is citing Acts 10, which we went through two weeks ago where God gave him this vision of a tablecloth with every animal in the world that he brought down. And he says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now, the significance, uh, if you remember Brian's sermon of that, of that vision, was not simply to tell Peter, hey, you can eat pork now. Go have a hot dog. That was not the point. The point was, you're about to commune. You're about to sit at the table with all nations. Sitting at and sharing a meal with someone was approval. It was saying that we're, we're the same. We, we are part of the same group. You, before this, Jews did not eat with Gentiles. It was, it was too close to touching something unclean, and then they couldn't enter the temple and all these things that the Mosaic Law had put up. So it was very divisive. So it kind of indicates the Mosaic Law was almost meant to segregate Israel for a time to grow them up in maturity 
but in order to launch them out into the nations as a mature people. And that time has come with the giving of the Spirit. And so, yes, the point of what Peter is saying is that I was there. He said, I, I was there in this sort of Gentile Pentecost. The Spirit was poured out on Cornelius and all those Gentiles who were there. And that was exactly the same as what happened to us, the Jews, if you remember in Acts 2, Pentecost, the Spirit was poured out. He says the primary reason that, there was, that God made no distinction, the reason we know this, the reason we know what you're saying is actually not true, is that God poured his Spirit out on Jew and Gentile all the same. Same Spirit, same manner, same everything. And we here today, we share this exact same experience. I'm looking out into the crowd. I'm seeing a lot of people who look different, who are from different places. Hardly anyone's even from Boston in this room, probably. Uh, I bet we all don't share the same first language. This is possible because intrinsically what the gospel is, it's not something confined by cultural lines or ethnic lines or certain divisive lines that you can draw around people. It's meant to permeate cultures and traditions and all of those things. It's the great equalizer. Now, Paul actually writes a whole letter about this issue called Galatians. So the church in Galatia, just before this council, has believed the Judaizers. The Judaizers came in and everyone believed it. They were kind of fear-mongered into it and they believed it. And so Peter, or sorry, Paul writes this letter to the Galatians and he's super angry the entire time. It's really kind of hard to read. Uh, in verses 27 through 29, he kind of, uh, he points out the key, uh, the key thing they need to remember here. This would be a good memory verse from the book of Galatians. Paul writes to them, he said, For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ, as opposed to traditional Jewish clothing to set them apart from, Gen apart from Gentiles. They've been clothed with Christ. That's what sets them apart. There is no Jew or Greek ethnic division, slave or free economic status division, male and female. Only males could be circumcised, so it was a bit divisive in that way. Since you are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. He takes it all the way back to Genesis 12. He's saying this is the fulfillment of God's covenant with Abraham. He's blessing all the nations through the offspring of Abraham. He started with the Jews to reach all other nations. Paul teaches here that the offspring of Abraham is not a blood connection, but a faith connection. Someone who follows Jesus, worships the God of Israel, has infinitely more in common with Abraham than a Jewish person who shares a blood connection but does not follow Jesus. If we share this faith, the simple faith of Abraham, where he simply went where God was calling him to go, to give up what he was called to give up and go to what God had for him, we share that same simple faith with Abraham. We are Abraham's offspring. And so Peter debunks this first issue, this sort of nationalist, race-centered, you know, Jewish-centered gospel. He debunks that. And then he goes on to debunk the self-righteous aspect, starting in verse 10 of Acts 15. Peter says, Now then, why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they are. Peter says, We're not saved by our good works or our ritual works or any works at all, we're saved for good works. We're saved in order to carry out what God has put before us, what he's called us into. You're getting the order all wrong here, and it's, it's a completely different message as a result. Uh, Pastor Tim Keller likes to put it this way. He likes to say that the natural inclination of the human heart towards God is to obey in order to be accepted. 
That's kind of our natural, that's what we just assume is the case. You obey his laws, and if you obey enough and frequently and often enough, you will be accepted. But the gospel completely breaks that down and flips it on, flips it on its head. And when we're given the spirit, it leads us to gradually more and more say, I don't obey to be accepted. I'm accepted by Jesus. Now I'm going to obey as a result. I'm going to obey in light of the love I now have for Jesus. I'm going to obey because if I trust Jesus to save me, I trust Jesus to guide me. If I trust Jesus with my past, I trust him with my future. You're getting the, all, the order all wrong here. And so you can see the conflict here. Two completely different messages are being spread through the early church. In the book of Galatians, which Paul writes, like I said, all about this issue, in chapter one, uh, he writes to them and says, I, I'm so dumbfounded, basically, that you've abandoned the gospel for this false gospel. You've, you've believed another gospel, another message of good news about Jesus. He says it's really no gospel at all. And why does he say it's because it's a, it's a small gospel. It's a gospel that's focused on just one group of people. It's, it's not, it doesn't have a, a world vision. It indicates that there's a small, like a small God with a small mind and a small vision. And so since it's a small gospel, it makes it a false gospel. It's no gospel at all. Uh, continuing on in Acts, after where Tucker uh, read us to, starting in verse 22, we see, what do they decide to do about this? What do the apostles decide to actually practically, we got to do something about this. We got to put something out there. So they decide to write a letter. So starting in verse 22, it says this, uh, then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to select men who were among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Judas called Barsabas and Silas, both leading men among the brothers. And they wrote this letter. From the apostles and the elders, your brothers, to the brothers and sisters among the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some without our, our authorization went out from us in Jerusalem and troubled you with their words and unsettled your hearts, we have unanimously decided to send men, select men and send them to you along with our dearly beloved Barnabas and Paul who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who will personally report the same things by word of mouth. For it was the Holy Spirit's decision and ours not to place further burdens on you beyond these requirements, that you abstain from food offered to idols, from blood, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to keep yourselves from these things. Farewell. So they say, no, there's no reason for you Gentiles to take up the Jewish lifestyle and become Jewish. That's, that's not going to benefit you in any way. But he does give certain requirements. Just realize here that uh, what we're saying, what we're reading here is not the apostles saying, hey, you want to come follow Jesus? You actually don't have to change or do anything. That's not what's happening. It's the wrong kind of change is what was being preached. Now, this, these last couple of verses are probably very confusing. Like, what is this about strangling stuff in blood? Why are they strangling stuff? You know, uh, and so really what's going on here is, uh, there, I feel like there should be a colon after, after idols because it's like giving examples of idolatry. So they're essentially saying, you've come out of this pagan lifestyle where you worship man-made gods and idols, and you were, you were fine to add one to your, you know, to your collection any given day of the week. That's not the case anymore. You worship the one true living God, the God of Israel as revealed in Jesus Christ. You must turn from idols. You don't have to become Jewish, but you do need to turn from your false man-made gods. And they were excited about this because this is already what they had agreed to. This is, what, this is the gospel they believed. 
The problem was that someone was coming in with extra commands and extra sort of conflicting uh, commands, acting like they had some authority to do so. And so they say, abstain from eating food that you know is offered to false gods, false idols. Don't make any sacrifices. You definitely don't need to do that. We don't even, as Jews, need to do that anymore. Jesus is our final sacrifice. You know, you read through the New Testament. Jesus is our sacrifice. He's the propitiation for our sins. He is uh, the one sacrifice for all time. There are no sacrifices needed. That ritual uh, will no longer point forward to the Messiah. The Messiah has come and he has done his work. And he also said, they also say, you know, abstain from blood and strangling things. So he's saying, don't make any, uh, don't make any sacri- uh, sacrifices. And then they also say, stay away from sexual immorality. So if you were part of uh, pagan worship uh, religions and whatnot, it was very common in these, in these religions, if you want to call them that, or cults, uh, that you would go into their pagan temples and you would interact with cult prostitutes. So sexual immorality really, it was a fabric of their religion. It wasn't just an immoral part of the way that they lived. It was actually a fabric of their religion. It was actually a gateway to their gods, their man-made gods. And so they just said, abstain, especially so from all of these things. Don't even give a hint that you're still living this pagan idolatrous lifestyle that maybe your friends are still participating in. Maybe your family is still participating in. There's probably a pressure to do that, to still maintain this sort of uh, level of your community, to stay a part of your family and friends. You cannot do that. You cannot do that. You'll completely conflict uh, the message people are hearing about Jesus. So he says, there's no longer a need for any of those things. Abstain from them. Interestingly enough, if we want to put some puzzle pieces together from the New Testament, so Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians about this problem. Then this council happened. And then the very next letter he writes is to a church he planted in Thessalonica called First Thessalonians. And in the greeting to that letter, he actually describes how he's heard that they've done this. They've obeyed this command. So First Thessalonians, verse 8, this is a Gentile church very far away from Jerusalem. And Paul writes this after he has left there. He says, For the word of the Lord rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, the region they were in, but in every place that your faith in God has gone out. Therefore, we don't need to say anything, for they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven who raised him from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. The church in Thessalonica understood their call as they followed the Jewish Messiah. Their call was not to give up their culture and become Jewish, which wouldn't really do much, but to turn from the empty ways of man-made religion and philosophies and faiths that people would just come up with haphazardly to stitch themselves to what they know to be true and alive, the living God, Jesus Christ, God of Israel. Now, Jesus, if we look at his ministry, we don't want to have this idea that Jesus kind of just interacted with Jews. And then when he ascended, the apostles kind of just made up this thing that we should go to the Gentiles. Jesus was already doing this in his ministry. So let's go to Matthew chapter 11 and look at his interactions about halfway maybe over a third through the gospel of Matthew here. And he's been preaching to lots of Jews and basically Jews who were very poor uh, were responding to him. Maybe they were, had some sort of illness or sickness or they were just not that big of a deal were responding to Jesus. But the, uh, the religious people, the influential people, the people who had power to lose basically uh, by believing in Jesus were just not having it. Jesus would perform signs, miracles, all these things, and they would just not have it. And so he says this, it says in uh, verse 20, then Jesus proceeded to denounce the towns where most of his miracles were being done 
because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, Gentile cities to the north, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes long ago. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted into heaven? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah, it's the, the, tip, the, the typical Gentile, like, wicked city of the Old Testament that was burned alive. If they had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until today. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father and Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent, the Jews who have the Mosaic law, and revealed them to infants, the Gentiles, who are just beginning to learn about the God of Israel. Yes, Father, because this was your good pleasure. All things have been entrusted to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal him. Jesus says that he's been entrusted to carry out the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, to bring the message, the gospel, the relationship that God has with the Jews, with Israel, to all peoples and all nations. Jesus is the pivotal point that changes everything. Jesus always went to Gentiles, very often went to Gentiles, when his own people refused to accept him. And ironically, the Gentiles had a much better track record of repenting and believing in him than the religious Jews, the outwardly religious Jews of his day, the people who had influence, people who knew the prophecies, who were supposed to know what the Messiah was going to be like when he came. And when he came, they just didn't like it. It was too conflicting for their, their earthly lives. They, he rebuked them. He told them that they were you know, practicing injustice and they wanted to maintain their ways instead of repent. So Jesus went to Gentiles. If you actually go back to Luke's crucifixion narrative, so Acts was written by Luke. It was a sequel to the Gospel of Luke. If you go back to Luke 23, Luke includes that after Jesus died, when he gave up his last breath, the very first person, after the sky turns black and the earth shakes and the rocks split open and the temple uh, curtain is torn into, the first person to respond in faith and say that Jesus is the Son of God was a Roman centurion. It was a military worker for the Roman Empire. Immediately repented. The Jews who killed him, maybe some of them repented, but they ended up just going on trying to cover up the resurrection three days later. It was the most religious outwardly that were actually the farthest from God. Instead of acknowledging their need for grace or their ignorance of the fact that the plan of God is to bring all nations together, they held on to their belief that you had to earn a spot with God. You had to put some skin in the game and earn your keep. They wanted to put a yoke on the Gentiles that they themselves can't even bear. Peter says, why would we tell them to do that? We and our ancestors haven't even fully, fully obeyed it. It doesn't even make any sense. Jesus has different plans. If we continue on in Matthew 11, Jesus says this. It's as if he's spoken to the, the Jews and he's condemned them. He says, woe to you. It's as if he kind of turns around and looks elsewhere and says, come to me. All of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy 
and my burden is light. Following Jesus is hard, but the, the yoke he gives us to carry is also energizing. It's difficult to follow Jesus, but it's lighter than any other burden that we could put on ourselves. Jesus is inviting us to hand over this unbearable weight of saving ourselves. But sadly, uh, many refuse to let go of it so that they can latch on to Jesus. Their pride, maybe their culture, or their fear of their family and friends will get in the way of simply being in Christ, nothing more. Uh, I have a graphic up here from a Pew Research study that was done over the past decade. And I want to kind of, this will be good for our series. We're kind, of, we're kind of tracing where we've come from. Why are we here today? How has Christianity sort of expanded out from uh, what we read in the book of Acts? And look at, this, look at this top bar here. So this is the geographic distribution of religious groups. This is basically how diverse uh, groups of faith are around the world. And I don't necessarily like lumping Christianity in with world religions. I get that there's obviously similarities. It's, it's like a faith religion, but obviously Christianity is inherently different. It's not a set of laws you adhere to necessarily. It's a person you're being formed into. You're f being formed into the image of Jesus. So if you look at the population, the world population up here, you see about 60% is uh, Asian and Pacific population. You got about 12% in uh, middle and south uh, Southern Africa, and then you got Europe, South America, North America, everything's pretty even after that point. If you look above Christians, you have Muslims, unaffiliated, Buddhists, Hindus, all these sort of Eastern man-made religions that include lots of idols as well. You see something very particular. They're extremely monocultural. They're extremely monocultural. But you look at Christianity, and it's very evenly dispersed around the world. Now, why is it? I'm not just saying like, oh, look how we meet a diversity quota, big whoop. That's not, that's not the point here. The point is that these other man-made faiths, they're lacking something that can permeate cultures and cross boundaries, cross ethnic lines, cross traditions, and simply equalize, put all people on the same playing field, and then resurrect them back up to new life. The gospel starts with a bit of bad news that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the gospel, if we're using that line of thinking, is the great equalizer, it puts us all on the same playing field. It's, it, it leads us all to the feet of Jesus, who was way more human than he was Jewish. He died for humanity, not just the Jews. Now you can kind of take this what you will, but it's also interesting that if you look at the Christian bar here, if you look all the way on the right, the tiny little sliver of blue is Middle East and North Africa, which is actually where Christianity started in the Middle East. I don't think I need to say a bunch of stuff about that. You could just kind of sit on that, that it's much more popular where Jesus wasn't from. Kind of just goes with what he kind of predicted. And so as we, as we close here, I want to read uh, from Ephesians chapter 2. Paul writes the letter of Ephesians to the churches in Ephesus, multiple Gentile churches, and he wants them to kind of pass this letter around. The first half of this letter, chapters one through three, are all about just the gospel for Gentiles. He's just preaching the gospel, the good news that the two have become, excuse me, the two have become one, Gentile and Jew. There's no dividing line anymore. That's not, that, that's not the step in the plan of salvation that we're at anymore. We have 
progress. God has moved the plan forward. He has used the Jews to reach all nations. And that plan is taking root right now. So uh, let us uh, just follow along as, as I read this for us. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Paul says, So then remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those who are called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two resulting in peace. He did this so that we might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away, Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, Jews. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. This is a gospel for us Gentiles today that we have been brought in.